pray with me? You join me in prayer? Father God, as we turn from worship now to hearing from your word, God, we ask you to open our hearts and open our minds to what you have to say to us. God, we ask that um, we could hear from your word today, that it would be alive in our lives, God, that we would walk out from this place later on ready to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, my name's Colin. If I didn't mention that before, I'm one of the teachers here at Southside. Go ahead and uh, have a seat as you're already doing because you're pros at the 9 o'clock service. But I thought we'd start with something a little different since this is really our first uh, Sunday of Advent and really we're talking a lot about Christmas and we've got the whole place decorated. So I asked Andy if he would spread a little Christmas cheer right here and now. Can, can you do that? Do that. I can All right. definitely do Let's that. see it. He made me do this. I made him I do it. This is true. Yeah. Here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Right down Santa Claus Lane. Blixit and blitzing and all his reindeer pulling on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. So hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Don't you just love Christmas? Don't you love Christmas music? Okay, hang with me for a second, because I see some of you are skeptical right now. There's a purpose for what I'm doing here, okay? There's a purpose. That's a great song, and there's a lot of great Christmas songs this time of year. Amen. Can I get an amen Amen. for some great Christmas cheese that we get in our songs and also on our plates? We love Christmas. Christmas is great. But here's a weird thing about Christmas music. Sometimes in songs like that, you'll have songs about elves and about Santa and about reindeer, and then they'll just sneak in a line that sounds kind of like this. Peace on earth will come to all if we just follow the line. So let's give thanks to the Lord above, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Beautiful. Give a hand for Andy. I made him do this. I did make him do this. All right, keep that up on the screen for a second, because I just want to point something out about this song. You notice that this line here, we're on the right track at the beginning. Peace on earth, that's great. We like peace on earth. Following the light, excellent. Giving thanks to the Lord, wonderful. All these beautiful messages about Christmas. But did you notice something in this song? How are we to follow the light? Where's the peace on earth come from? Why are we giving thanks to the Lord? Oh yeah, because Santa Claus comes tonight. Yeah, it's like they got on this right track of all these beautiful, hopeful things about Christmas, and then they didn't know what to do with it, so they just said, ah, because Santa Claus is coming tonight. Santa Claus is going to bring peace and light to this world, and we should all praise God for that. Well, it's a really strange message. (laughs) One One of the things that is really weird about Christmas is just this very phenomenon where you've got all different kinds of people are talking about hope and talking about expectation and talking about peace on earth and light to the world, but some of the people don't know what to do with that. And so they assign it to Santa Claus. They assign it to someone else. They, they assign it to the holly and the ivy and the O Tannenbaum and all these other things. Whereas we as Christians know that there really is hope that comes at Christmas, but it's the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. All of this, when we talk about all of this hope, and that's what our message today is about, I want to defend for you kind of an interesting big idea today, and it's that Christmas is the only hope for our world. Christmas is the only hope that we have in this world. Hope is everywhere this time of year. We have hope through Jesus Christ. And this hope that is all around in all these songs and in all these sentiments is only an echo 
And it's only pointing toward the ultimate hope that comes with the birth of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at a a passage today. Let me show you what I mean in this passage today. This was written by the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus was born. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a powerful message. Just to remember that the prophet Isaiah here, 700 years before Jesus was born in the manger, writes all of these things about who that child born and that son given will be. So I want to look at this passage a little more deeply, and the first thing that we notice here is that we need hope. Our world needs hope. We as individuals are in desperate need of hope in this world. Notice, uh, look, look again at verse 2. Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And another translation of this that is really interesting, of what Isaiah is saying here in that second clause, is on those living in the death shadow, a light has flashed, which is just this really cool and vivid image that's going on. But what is the death shadow? Because that's actually something that comes up in the Bible over and over again. You might remember from uh, Psalm 23, where David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's that same message. And you notice it comes up all over the Old Testament, the shadow of death, the death shadow, to talk about what is it like to live as a human being in this fallen and sinful world. We're living under the death shadow. And so to understand exactly what that means, we have to go back, way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 to see what happens there. You you remember the story, some of you, that God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings. He put them in the Garden of Eden, this perfect existence, this paradise, where these really weird things are described as happening in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve are walking and talking with God. We have these little messages saying that they heard God walking in the garden, and to us, we're like, what would that even be like? What does that even look like? What does that sound like when those things happen? We have no idea. And the whole reason that we have no idea is because we live in such a different world today than the world that God created at the beginning. And so God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden. They have this perfect existence with him. And he gives them this message in Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this one tree you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so there's the message. There's the warning. You can eat any, from any of the trees in the garden but this one tree. Because when you eat of this tree, that act of rebellion against God will culminate and result in your death. That's the warning from God. And you may know the story that Adam and Eve are tempted. They take the tree. They, they take the fruit from the tree. They eat of the fruit. God finds out. They're cast out of the garden. And then we don't normally go this far with the story, but if you notice a few chapters later in Genesis, you get 
a page of something that you probably, as you're reading the Bible, tempted to skip right over. It's a genealogy where over and over again it's talking about Adam lived this long and he had this many sons and daughters and then he died. And then Adam's son had uh, lived this long and he had this many sons and daughters and then he died. And if you read that passage, the thundering refrain in that passage is, and he died, and he died, and he died. All the generations from Adam, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and rebelled against him in the garden, each and every one of them died. That's what it is to live in the death shadow. You see, for us, in the world that we live in today, we grow up and we live in a world where death is a certain thing. Death is a part of life. Death is something that just naturally happens. We come to accept that. But the message of the Bible is that you and I were never meant to die. We were meant to live forever with God. And so living in the death shadow means we live under this thundering refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's a constant reminder of our sin against God and just what it cost us to sin against him. You know, one of my uh, favorite possessions and maybe the best purchase I ever made was blackout curtains. Have you ever heard of these things? Yeah, right? I know, it's, it's kind of pulling you out of a pretty serious moment where I've just had, and he died on the screen about 80,000 times. Now I'm going to talk about my curtains, but um, <laughs> these blackout curtains are the greatest thing ever made on God's green earth. I'm telling you, if you don't have any, you go to Target and you buy some after the service right now. Tell them Colin sent you. Um, These things are amazing. These things are amazing because basically what this means is that it can be high noon on the hottest, sunniest day of the year in the middle of July, but if I close my curtains, I am suddenly in a subterranean cave, and I can sleep all day long, and I can and I have. And it, it is... It is a beautiful thing, these blackout curtains. But have you ever noticed when you're in darkness for a long time, when you've got the curtains drawn, or you know, and and you don't know what's behind the curtain? It could be any time of day. You just kind of lose sense, all track of time. You're laying in bed. You sleep till noon. It's just totally dark in there. And then suddenly you go and open the curtains, and it's bright, and it blinds you, and it stings, and it's weird, and it's different. Well, that's what it's like to live in this world. We're living in this room where the light of Jesus Christ, the light of God, has been completely blacked out. And we're so used to being in this world under death's dark shadow that it just seems like what's normal. But when Jesus comes into a life, it's like he's opening those curtains and suddenly the light comes flooding back into the room. That's the message that we're talking about. That's the message of Christmas. And when Isaiah talks about the people who walked in darkness, he's talking about us. We live under the death shadow. We live in this hopeless world. And on us, the light of Jesus Christ at Christmas has flashed upon us. Let's go on to the next thing here. I want to do something a little different in this talk. And I want to show how God's plan to save us from that death shadow, how it culminates and how it's told in Scripture. See, just after this rebellion... Just after Adam and Eve rebel against God and all of this sin comes into the world, something really interesting happens. So remember the story. Do you remember someone tempts Adam and Eve to sin against God? It's the serpent. This serpent, this creature comes and tempts Adam and Eve, says, did God really say that if you eat of that tree, then you will die? He starts to introduce doubt into their minds. And this serpent is not just some snake that learned how to talk, but it's actually an embodiment of Satan, of our spiritual enemy, the devil. And so he comes to the first two human beings, tempts them to disobey God. They do disobey God, and then God pronounces all these things that will happen because they were disobedient. 
He talks about how our relationships won't be the same, how we won't be able to resist sin, how work will become difficult for us, all of these consequences. And then he turns to the serpent. He turns to Satan, and he pronounces all of these curses against Satan because of his sin. And then there's this really interesting statement in Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Then notice this really weird cryptic statement here. He says to Satan, to the serpent, he, the offspring of the woman, shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse here is called the proto-evangelium. So there's a $10 word for you. It means the first gospel. Because here in the first pages of our Bible is the very first mention of God's plan that he's announced where he's going to save us from this world under the death shadow. He talks about someone coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to, who's going to crush the serpent once and for all, the serpent crusher. And the reality is that God declares this is going to happen, and we don't see this happen in the whole Bible. The whole Bible after this is the story of waiting for who's going to be this serpent crusher, who's going to make an end to sin, who's going to set things right in God's world. Fast forward a little bit, and people and sin continue to multiply in this world, and then we see the next movement in God's plan, where God chooses a people. So God announces his plan, then God chooses a people. This is an amazing story in Genesis, where God, completely out of the blue, speaks to a man named Abram. A man named Abram who knew nothing about who God was. God speaks to him, and this is what he says in Genesis chapter 12. It says, The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So he says, Get up and go. Leave everything you've known, and I'll let you know when we get there. Just start walking. Then he says, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the message here is that God is going to take this man, Abram, make him into a great nation by all of his descendants, and notice the purpose of all of this, that God wants to bless the world through this people that he's chosen. And so the descendants of Abraham will become the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, and they are meant to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. That's what God is promising here. But the the amazing thing is, as great as Abraham was, as great of of a life as he led, he never becomes that blessing to all the nations that was promised here. And the Jewish people that come from Abraham, they never become that blessing to all the nations. We're waiting for something or someone different. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means exalted father because he'll become the father of the nation of the Jewish people. Fast forward a little bit more. The Jews are now slaves in Egypt. God sends Moses to liberate them, to save them from slavery, to lead them out of Egypt into the desert, and then comes the next movement in God's plan, where God reveals his wisdom. So God gives Moses the law, which is his wisdom, the way that they're meant to live their lives together. This law is meant to limit sin, to protect God's people from sin. But Moses says something really interesting. As he comes down from the mountain with the tablets of the law, he gives this message to God's people, and then right in the middle of Deuteronomy, we have this weird promise from Moses. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
And so here we're promised a prophet like Moses, that there's someone coming in the same way that Moses communicated the wisdom of God through the law of God, which is the beginning of our Old Testament. In the same way, he's sending another prophet like Moses who will teach them everything about God's wisdom. But the reality is Moses wasn't enough. The law wasn't enough. Something else is coming later on to communicate more fully the wisdom of God. Fast forward a bit more. Last one here. Now we see that uh, as the nation grows more and more, they get established in their own land, in the promised land, then God appoints a king. God appoints a king. God chooses a man named David to be king over his people. He crowns him king so that he can lead God's people, the Jewish people, in God's ways, in his wisdom. Look at what God says to this man, David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You know, this is true for a while, that the descendants of David rule on the throne in Israel for generations, but then eventually the nation of Israel and Judah, they fall. The king and the royal line are completely, they completely disappear. But God always keeps his promises. And so now we wait for a king like David, a king like David who will rule on the throne forever and ever. You can probably see where I'm going with this, but this all leads us back to the passage and to the reason for our hope. This is why we need hope, this unfolding story of God, this this rebellion that we started against him that leads to us living under the shadow of death. But the reason for our hope, the ground for our hope, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason for our hope. Look at verse 6 back in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called, notice these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Jesus is the child who was born. He is the son who was given, on whom the government is placed, who is called those titles of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in Jesus Christ, this whole plan of God starts to come together. Let me show you what I mean. We're promised a serpent crusher. And while Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden is an act of rebellion against God's reign, they rebel against God, they kick against God's reign, Jesus is the mighty God who crushes the serpent and restores that reign through his death and resurrection. While Abraham is the exalted father, and in him is promised this descendant who's going to be a blessing to all nations, Jesus is the everlasting father. And the descendant of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the world are blessed by his, the gift of salvation through his blood. We're promised a prophet like Moses, and while Moses spoke for God and revealed his wisdom in part, Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the supernatural embodiment of the wisdom of God, who not only speaks the wisdom of God in his life on earth, but is actually the embodiment by his obedience to God's law that was revealed long ago by Moses. And then finally, we expect this king like David, and while David was a good king, while he was a man after God's own heart, Jesus is the prince of peace who not only rules in God's place, but he is God. And he will rule on the throne forever and ever and ever. Notice here that Jesus is the exact right answer to the problem of sin that we have in this world. That as God is unfolding his plan, he's always pointing to something greater to come. 
And now we, all these years later, get to look back and realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God was doing from the very beginning when he announced that one who would come who would crush the head of our enemy, Satan, the serpent. Finally, we get to look at what all this hope is for. We hope in Jesus. Jesus is the substance of our hope. But what is it culminating toward? Why do we have hope right now? We hope for the coming kingdom of God. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of Jesus' government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice something interesting in this passage here. Verse 6, which tells us to us a child is born, to us a son is given, tells us who Jesus will be. Verse 6 has come true. Jesus has come. Jesus was born in the manger. Jesus is the child who was given to us, the son who was born all those years ago. But then, just in the very next verse, we see in verse 7 that it hasn't come true yet. That we don't yet have this world of justice and righteousness and the never-ending increase of God's government through Jesus Christ. There's something missing in between here. We talk often, uh, theologians and Bible teachers have talked about God's kingdom as already and not yet. Which means that God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is established, it's begun, but it's not yet fully realized. We don't fully experience the fullness of what God is doing in this world. God's kingdom is already here because Jesus has come. The king has come. He has made us right with God. We can live under his reign here and now. We can have forgiveness of our sins, but the kingdom's not yet here because not everyone recognizes that reign of God. So there isn't yet perfect peace. There isn't yet justice and righteousness, and Jesus is not yet reigning in the same way that he will when he comes back. So here's the weird question, right? Why is there a gap? Why does Jesus come at Christmas? Why is he born as a baby? Why does he live this life of obedience? Why does he die on the cross, rise again, and then he ascends into heaven? All of his life seems to be culminating toward this thing that's promised in Scripture that Jesus will rule over all people, that he'll establish his reign, that judgment is coming for those who are evil and who are fighting against him, that he'll eradicate sin and he'll completely bring all people back to him. Why didn't it happen when Jesus first came? Why did he ascend into heaven? Why did he promise to come back later? For you, for me. Do you realize if Jesus only came the one time, if he came to this world and he just did it all in one fell swoop, you and I would not be here now. You and I would not be brought into the kingdom of God. The very reason that there's a gap between Christmas and Judgment Day is so that God can build his kingdom with more and more people brought into his church, into his people, so that he can spend eternity with all of us. That's the message of Christmas, and that is precisely why Christmas is the only hope for our world. Because Jesus is the only hope for our world. Because this is the time here and now as God builds his kingdom and brings people into it. Our world is full of hopelessness. Just take a moment and think about the things that you see on TV, the things that you read, the conversations you have. If you asked somebody in your life, a coworker, a family member, if you asked somebody in your life, are you hopeful about the future of our world? What do you think they would say? Are you optimistic about what's happening in our world? Do you think there's a good future in store for humanity, in store for our world, in store for our country, even in store for your own life? 
People are living in hopelessness. People are crumbling under the weight of this death shadow that absolutely robs us of hope. And in the midst of that world, we preach a gospel of hope. We preach a message that tells us that God wanted to save us from the death shadow. So on Christmas Day, he came into our world as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And he is coming back to establish his kingdom on, in this world forever and ever and ever. And that message speaks loudly. And it is different in this world of hopelessness. So I want to leave you with a, one last question here. Are you living with hope? Are you living with hope? The reality is that as Christians, we have to go through all the same stuff that everybody else in this world goes through. And if any Bible teacher tries to tell you different, that Jesus is, means that you don't have to go through the struggles and the hardships of life, then run the other direction. <laughs> you are going to go through all the same stuff that everyone in this world has to go through. You're going to get sick, get old, get tired, eventually die. You'll fight with loved ones. You'll lose friends. You'll hold grudges, and you'll have grudges held against you. You'll get anxious. You'll get depressed. You'll worry about your future, about the future of your family and your friends. We're not immune from all the struggles and all the hardships of this world. In fact, Jesus tells us that living in this world, we will have trouble with our lives, but that we can take heart. We can have hope because Jesus has overcome this world. And so that's the difference. You're going to have to go through everything that anybody else is going to have to go through. But as a Christian, you get to see it differently. You get to look through the prism of what God is doing in this world. You get to put over your eyes the glasses that show who Jesus is, what he's doing, that he's coming back, and that when he does, he's going to make an end to sin. That all of these things that plague us, all of these things that get us down, all these things that give us hopelessness are going to be completely wiped away so that we don't even remember them anymore and we can live in the hope of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Last night I had trouble sleeping. And uh, it's actually abnormal for me. I'm usually pretty good at falling asleep. But uh, yesterday I drank too much coffee too late in the afternoon, which is a problem that plagues me very often. But, so I laid in bed and I was angry at myself for drinking all this coffee and I'm thinking about my message for today. And I realized that the thing that normally keeps me up at night is not, uh, when, it, when I am kept up at night, is not fear of the future or worry about something that's to come. It's usually excitement for something that's supposed to come the next day. The times in my life that I've had trouble sleeping are usually when I'm going on a trip or I'm excited for something that's going to happen the next day. I'm going to do something fun. I'm going to see someone I haven't seen in a long time. Those are the kind of things that keep me up at night. And I realized as I was laying there that laying in bed awake is kind of like what it's like to live in this world. It's night in this world. We live in the darkness, and here we are laying in bed awake waiting for the morning. The question is, what's keeping you awake? As you go through this dark world, are you kept awake just simply because you had too much coffee? Because there's nothing else to do, you can't sleep, so you're just going to lay there and wait it out until morning? Are you kept awake by the things that worry you? Are you kept awake because you don't know what's coming when morning comes? Because you don't know what your future holds? Because you don't know if there's any good future for this world? Are you kept awake because you're excited? Because you're hopeful? Because you know that in the morning, Jesus comes. And when he does, he'll make an end to sin. Night will never come again. 
Christians, we need to be a people of hope. Because in our hopeless world, people need hope. They need that message. They need the gospel. We need to proclaim it. We need to be people defined by the hope that comes from knowing that our God is coming back for us to save us and to bring us to him. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that you would increase our hope in you. I pray that you'd help us more and more to walk through life, not with our heads down, not afraid of what's to come, not afraid of the future, but God, hopeful, knowing that at the end of our lives comes something so much greater, eternity with you. God, at any moment you could break into this world, you could bring things to an end, destroy sin, establish your reign over this world. God, I pray that as we think about those things, we wouldn't be filled with dread or fear, but we'd be filled with hope. Our king is coming. God, as we go to worship, fill us with that hope. Increase that hope in us. In Jesus' name.